Amen. You can be seated. Um, I know that two minutes, maybe for some, felt like a long time. And for others, you were like, dude, has it been two minutes already? Um, let, me just, uh, let me just encourage you. If, you're, if you are like, what just happened? I'm so confused. Um, you can reach out to me anytime, and we can talk about the baptism in the Holy Spirit and what that is and what we believe and how that works in our lives. But in the Assemblies of God, um, we believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues, not as an event in our lives, but as power to be witnesses, not power to witness, power to be witnesses, to be witnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that means living in power, living in right relationships with other believing, believers, living in mercy, living in the miraculous, living in as witnesses of who Jesus is as the resurrected Lord. And so we many times have the right belief system. We just don't actually practice it. Um, it's not enough for us to believe that the baptism in the Holy Spirit with speaking in tongues is for today if we're not practicing it in our daily lives. And um, a, an evangelist by the name of Dean Niferatus, if you're familiar with Dean, he's a little bit of a fireball, um, but he challenged me when I was young in my understanding of the Holy Spirit and who he is. Um, Dean challenged me or challenged us, I was at a men's retreat, to set a timer and pray in the Spirit for five minutes every day. Um, and some, for some, that's like, oh, that's not how that works. You have to be, you know, you have to play music and you have to get in the Spirit. And no, you, you can, the Spirit is subject to the prophet. And the gift of tongues is given to you to exercise. And you can exercise it anytime, anywhere. Um, and he even talked about using it in, when you're praying about situations. Again, we think we know how to pray about things. We think we know what we want to ask for, but the Holy Spirit actually knows how to pray. And um, so this last week, as Donna was sharing, she was looking for a house, and she didn't have time to look for a house. So she just talked about how she just prayed in the Spirit and let the realtor, who was a believer, look for the house for her. I mean, and I was just reminded that that seems so like, wow, that's so simple. And yet, how many times do we sit at our desks at work and we, oh, I just don't know what to do about this. Pray in the Spirit. Not, not so loud that your office hears it, but pray in the Spirit. Seriously, that's what he's here for. Because we don't know how to pray. But I know as Americans, we don't like to say, we don't know how to pray. Because um, we know everything. Um, we don't pray in the Spirit more than we do. So if you've been praying in the Spirit regularly, increase. And if you haven't, start. The funny thing is, is over the pandemic, two people in our body, well, one who's moved away, but we, people never leave us, by the way, Karen. We send you away, and you're always connected to us. Wherever you go, you are Restoration Church with us. So we don't let people leave. We send them. Um, and so we've sent another person in the past who reached out to me during the pandemic, received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, been speaking or seeking it a long time, finally happened. So another member of our body reached out to me during the pandemic. I'm like, look, even during the time of isolation, the Holy Spirit's at work. So continue to, to seek after that. And that really, I don't think it maybe has a little bit to do with the sermon today, but we'll see. So today, part 28 in our series called Trust the Story, and we're going to the book of Philemon. 
If you don't know where Philemon is, you hopefully have a, an electronic Bible. It'll be way easier to find. It's after Titus, and it's before Hebrews. And it's one page in your Bible. It's like 24 verses. Um, and I don't know if you have ever looked into how we ended up with the Bible. I don't have my Bible up here. Um, it's over there. But how did we end up with those books? Because there are other books written by um, Enoch and maybe others that we think um, that are contained in some Christian literature but aren't necessarily in our Bible. And how did we settle on these? And um, how did we put them in this order? And I've alluded to it a little bit that the Hebrew Bible, and if you have the Version Bible app, you can go to a translation like a Messianic version or a Hebrew version of the Bible, and you can see that they're in different order. When we put together, and by we, um, when church fathers put together the order of the books of the Bible, for the Old Testament, they kind of organized them in our Western mind, you know, the books of the law, then the history books, and then the writings, and then the prophets. But the Hebrews, if you even look at the words of Jesus, he talks about the law, the prophets, and the writings. There's only three segments of the Hebrew Bible that Jesus would have had when he was on the earth. And so Genesis through Deuteronomy would have been the Torah, the law. But starting in the book of Joshua, that's not history to the Hebrews. That's prophecy. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, those are prophetic books. So those are what Jesus and the apostles would have referred to as the prophets. So when Jesus says from the law and the prophets... He also means Joshua and Judges as much as he means like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Then the, the writings would have been the final thing. Um, and for the Hebrews, the book of Chronicles, which is actually the oldest written book in the Old Testament, we believe, was the last book of the Bible. And so our book, Malachi, ends with, if you don't do this, I'm going to come and strike the land with a curse. But if you look how Chronicles for the Hebrews ends, Chronicles actually takes the words of King's, King Xerxes, I believe it is, and his proclamation that God has called him to build a temple for himself and whoever wants to go back and build it so that God's name can be glorified. From the lips of a godless king, um, the, the final words of the Hebrew Bible. And so in the New Testament, um, of course, they didn't have them. I mean, they were just letters still being written. But then the early church fathers, they did this thing where they just put them in order, the Gospels first, then the Acts and then for the letters, they just put them in order of like, okay, Paul wrote the most letters, so let's put him first. Romans is the longest, so let's put that first. And then all the way down through Philemon, which is tiny. And then after Philemon, Hebrews, which we're not sure who wrote. And then James, which James wrote. And then Peter, and then John, and then Jude. And then we conclude with Revelation. So if you're just wondering... Um, that's kind of how we put them in order. So they're not written in order. So on the untold story, what we're trying to do is show you how they were written, how from Old Testament to New Testament, this is one continuous story that God has been telling and how God interacts with humankind through it. And so we've been trying to give us points along the way to help us draw a line from beginning to end and understand what God is doing in our current world today. And so um, last week we read from the book and we also read the book of Philemon. This next week, just a short paragraph in the book on what Ephesians and the background of Ephesians and then the book of Ephesians. And then we're going to pick that up next week. And so sometimes people will 
will say to me, Pastor Tom, I just want the Bible. I don't want other commentaries. I don't want any. Um, and sometimes what we fail to understand is the Bible that you hold in your hand today is the product of interpreters taking the Bible that was written in a different culture, in a different language, and putting it in a language that you understand. So every translation in every um, Bible that you have is actually an interpretation of the Bible. So it's really like, please don't misunderstand this, it's like a commentary. That does not mean the Bible is not authoritative, okay? Please hear that. The Bible is the authoritative Word of God. And if you take it the way we've been looking from beginning to end, it does not change the authoritative nature of God's Word. Let me be clear. The Bible is the inspired Word of God. And it is for our lives. But if you look at even the words of the Apostle Peter, he writes, talking about Paul, the same in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters that Peter was just discussing. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Now, if the Apostle Peter, who walked with Jesus, was raised as a Jew, who lived in the same time as the Apostle Paul, says that those letters are hard to understand, why do we sometimes flippantly think it's so easy to just understand the Bible? We have to understand that we do not want to be like these that Peter describes, ignorant and unstable. The word ignorant sounds like a terrible thing, but it just means unschooled and untaught. And Christians for a long time have really been lazy when it comes to our understanding of the word. It's not that we don't read it, we don't study it. We don't recognize that when Jesus said this, he's actually referring back to the Old Testament because we think, well, the Old Testament, that's old. We don't even need to pay attention to that. And yet, the, the Scripture from beginning to end is this complete revelation of who God is and what he's doing on earth. And we take things out of context, sometimes just in our ignorance because we don't want to study it, or because we're unstable. Again, that's not an insult. Unstable just means not fixed, not planted. The Bible was meant to be studied in community with a group of believers you walk with on a regular basis because then we can see the fruit of one another's lives because you can tell a false teacher not by what they teach but by their fruit, by the fruit of their lives. And somewhere along the line, we've started thinking that the most important thing is doctrine, orthodoxy, how we believe. And as true as it is, it's important to know what to believe. It is not more important than orthopraxy. Orthopraxy is how we behave, the fruit of our lives. And so some of us, oh, yeah, we, Pastor, we believe in the baptism in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. How, how much did you pray in the Spirit this week? See, that's the difference between orthodoxy an orthopraxy. An orthodoxy, knowing the right doctrine, is super important. But knowing how to live it out is sometimes even more important. And so we're going to look at this tiny book called Philemon. And I call this an appeal based on love. An appeal based on love. And there are two scriptures that I want to look at, one in Philippians and one in Colossians. And the Apostle Paul, when he's writing, I know we, we're going to go to Philemon in a minute, but when he's writing to these churches, look at this. He says, my prayer is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight 
so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Colossians 1, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. So there's this constant, I want you to understand. I want you to know. I want you to have knowledge and insight. I want you to grow in it. We ought to be growing in our knowledge and understanding of the Scripture, the Word of God, what the Spirit is saying, so that it affects the way we live our lives. Both. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy. And, but I often wonder, why didn't the Apostle Paul just tell them everything they need to do? We're going to see this in the book of Philemon more than anywhere else in the Scripture. We sometimes, and me, I'm super guilty of this because I'm a guy that's kind of black and white. I like everything black and white, right or wrong, yes or no, black, white, always. And so when I just have to like figure something out, the worst thing I like to do is sit and brainstorm with people. I just, but in the body of Christ, that's what we're called to. And it would be easy for me to say, well, that's just not my personality. Well, but if it's a calling in the body of Christ, then I got to put my personality aside and I got to engage with the community of believers and walk this out. And that's kind of what Paul's doing in the book of Philemon. And so two questions I want us to process as we go through this book. One How should you and I, as a kingdom culture, interact with each other? As a body of believers, how should we, as a kingdom culture, interact with each other? And the second one, how should we together, as a kingdom culture, engage our earthly culture? Those are the two questions. And by the way, I'm not going to give us answers to those questions, but I'm going to engage those questions so that we have to really engage those questions as we go. Because I know some of us would like to say, well, you just tell us what you think or what we need to do and we'll just respond to it. But even the Apostle Paul didn't do that in the Scriptures. They did teach them and the people did devote themselves to the Apostles' teaching, but Paul understood that living that out uh, was going to take a period of time. In fact, the Apostles themselves, it took them a while to learn to live this out. How many years did it take them to realize, oh, Jew and Gentile, we're supposed to sit at the same table. Whoa, didn't see that one coming. More than 10 years after Jesus ascended from the earth, it took us to to process how to live out these doctrines of our faith. And I think in the body of Christ, we've got a lot of doctrines right, but when we actually live them out, there's some things that we need to look at. So the background, real quick, on the book of Philemon. Philemon is in the church at Colossae. He's a wealthy man, and he is a leader in the church at Colossae, and he has a slave named Onesimus. Now, Onesimus, you have to understand slavery. Slavery in the Roman world is not like slavery we know, okay? 30%, they estimate, a third of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves, Slave was not a, a race thing. Slave was a, um, it, it was more of a status thing. Let's put it that way. So it wasn't that because you're this nationality or you're this race that you're a slave. It was uh, either you were born into slavery or you had a debt that you couldn't pay, so you had to sell yourself into slavery. Some in the early church sold themselves into slavery to raise money for the poor process that. 
believers actually sold themselves into slavery to make money for the poor. That, I don't know what to even do with that in my mind, but um, you, could, you were educated, you had different roles, and there was laws that governed slavery. So it wasn't like a slave master had absolute authority over their slaves. They weren't like pieces of property. They were still people, um, but they were slaves. And so their rights were limited, but often... Uh, people would set their slaves free. They, the slave would, would earn basically such a right standing with that person that they would set them free. free. So we, we get this picture of this slave named Onesimus who somehow runs away from his owner Philemon. And there's a lot of debate on whether Philemon was mistreating Onesimus or whether Onesimus um, had done something wrong and then he fleed and now he's a fugitive. Um, I tend to believe that he did something wrong that uh, he ran away from Philemon. But there is, in this period of time, as a slave, if you know you've done something wrong but, and you're going to be punished because as a slave owner, Philemon has the right to punish his slave who stole from him or did something wrong, you could go to someone else and appeal to them to make a plea on your, behave, on your behalf, then the punishment would be less severe. And I really see that Onesimus doing that because he runs to Paul, who he knows Paul and Philemon have a good relationship, and he asks for Paul to speak on his behalf to get mercy. And in the process, Onesimus becomes a believer. I mean, that, what a story. This is great. So Philemon, chapter 1, that's just a brief overview. That's about all the time we have for But Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Interesting. Paul starts his letters sometimes with a slave of Christ Jesus, but he chooses not to use the word slave here. And a lot of times he uses the word apostle, meaning authority. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, it gives weight. But in this instance, Paul chooses the word prisoner, and I think you'll see why as we go through the letter. Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only letter that we have in the entire New Testament that's addressed to a man, a single guy, a single person. He's not single, like unmarried, but to him directly. But it also includes the church. This letter is to be read to the church. Okay, so Paul is dealing with a situation with Philemon. He's about to make an appeal to him, but he actually writes it to the entire church. Now, I want you to process that in our American culture, okay, where we do everything kind of in private, and, you know, you don't need to know my business, and I just, you know, go to church, and then I go home, and I don't really interact with other people, and it's just all about me, and, you know, I need to be fed, and, you know, I don't want to be... Uh, how would this go... In our culture today, if if someone wrote a letter to one of us making an appeal, but yet put us in front of the whole church on the spot. And you got to understand, we see that right away as negative. Oh, man, he's putting him on the spot. It's not a negative thing. It's called community. It's called community. It's just foreign to us. Okay, but Paul is not trying to make Philemon look bad. And I think you'll see it right here in verse four. I always thank my God. 
as I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. And I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing that we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. So he starts by praising Philemon. Philemon sounds like a good guy, and I don't think that he was mistreating his slave. I think Onesimus is the one that did something that he shouldn't have done and ran away. I could be wrong, but I do not believe. um, Some scholars will say that Paul is buttering up Philemon. I disagree. If Paul told us to to not use flattery and insincere speech, I have a hard time believing that he would use insincere speech here. Okay? So I believe he really thinks that this is true of Philemon. And so he's emphasizing his good track record, but he's tying that track record together with the appeal he's about to make. Because again, sometimes in, in the body of Christ, we have a truth and we, we believe this truth, but we miss the application of it in other ways. So for example, we pray, oh, the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. Yes, God, thank you for your forgiveness to us, and I right now am forgiving those who sin against me. And then on the way home from church, someone pulls out in front of us, you jerk, where did you learn how to drive? I don't Disconnect, see? Because, oh, we should have forgiveness right up until the time we actually have to forgive someone. And then when we have to forgive them, all of these reasons why I shouldn't forgive them come to mind. Which, by the way, God could have used towards us. But he didn't. So, we sometimes misapply the the belief system that we have in practice. That's why community is so important to help us see this. So then... After he starts making his appeal in verse 8, therefore, okay, so you're a good guy. This is how you treat the church. So, therefore, although in Christ, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Ah, I could be an apostle, but I'm not. I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man, now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, again, some people are like, he's just laying it on thick here. I think Paul is coming to the point where he has a realization of who he is. Um, Everything, I consider everything is rubbish, Paul writes near the end of his life, for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count it all loss. Nothing matters. I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. So, I think Paul is being genuine here. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. That's important. But now he has become useful both to you and me. I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Now, a lot of scholars will say this is very tongue-in-cheek. Paul is saying, I appeal to you on the basis of love, but there's a clear (laughs) right and wrong here. And the fact that he's putting him on display for the whole body, um, yeah. When you read it, I I don't know how to read it any other way. 
Um, Paul's like, I'm going to appeal to you based on love, but by the way, there's really only one, one right answer to choose here. Um, but I'm going to trust that you make the right decision. And so, but he's not just, why doesn't he just come out and tell him, hey, you got to do this? Because again, I think the apostles are trying to teach the church not to just have a law for every little thing that you have to do. They're trying to teach them, okay, here's the wisdom of God's word. How do you apply it to your daily life? And for some of us, we just want, you know, all the right answers. And I get it. It's so much easier just to have black and white. Here's all the rules you got to keep. And we used to live like that in church, the church world. Here's all the rules. You can't do this and this and this and this and this and this. And yet none of us really know the heart of what the Father's saying and then how to actually put that into practice in our lives. So, you know, we don't play cards because, you know, they're used in casinos and they, you know, and we wear real long dresses because we, you know, it's how we're supposed to do it. But we're a jerk to people in real life. And we're like the worst employees in our office because we have no work ethic. You see the disconnect? And so Paul is trying to get us to know how to put these things into practice in our lives. I really think that's what he's doing. So he says to him, you know, this is what I want you to do. And this is as a culture, a kingdom community, what we should do. Now, the word Onesimus, his name means useful. That's what his name means. And so it literally, um, N.T. Wright says, literally it could be translated Mr. Useful. Now, it's almost a derogatory term. It would be like calling Adam, the first man, calling him Dusty. Get it? Dusty? Uh-huh. Because that's what Adam means. <laughs> so that's kind of what's happening here. And you've got to understand, um, oh, so much I could tell you. We, some slaves were found, and some people made their living by finding abandoned children um, and raising them and selling them into slavery. Um, it's totally not like what we think today, okay? It's not like sex trafficking. It's not like, um, and so slaves were treated different, um, and that abandoned baby otherwise was going to die. People abandon babies all the time. Um, if you had a child that was born with birth defects, you would just, culturally, you just took it to the end of the city and you abandoned it. Um, but if you had children that you couldn't raise, you just didn't have the money or whatever, you, you just took them and you abandoned them. And that, um, and they just did it. And it was just a part of their culture. And they, no one thought it was a bad thing. Okay? Um, and so they weren't trying to be mean. These were good people that just didn't have any other options. And they did this to their children. So some people would go fine, and you had to know how to find the useful children. Because you couldn't, you couldn't raise one with birth defects because they wouldn't be useful. <laughs> but thank God that he created a kingdom community of people that started to go look for those children and just raise them um, whether they were useful or not. Totally changed the culture. Whew. So Onesimus could have been just one of these children. Um, seems so hard to say that flippantly. Um, that could have been just found um, and Paul makes a play on that. Um, he's now useful. And he was useless before, but now he's useful. And then I love this. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while so that you could have him back forever. Okay, so Philemon probably uh, 
wants to punish Onesimus. He stole from him. He ran away. Maybe he ran away to make an appeal. And Paul is like, um, perhaps the reason all of this happened is God was at work. I love that. I mean, so much of our lives, I love what Christy said today. I mean, in the sun and rain, God's at work. Perhaps nothing, he's at work. Um, but Paul doesn't want to be bold and say that God was behind all of this. But he's like, perhaps, because the end result is Onesimus is now a brother, and so I'm sending him back to you, and he's now your brother. And so he says, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, I'm writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, I mean, do you see him tightening the screws here? It's like, I mean, I believe Philemon's a good guy, but Paul's like, hey, dude, remember, in view of God's mercy, what you need to do right here. And so the funny thing is, is Paul never really says, and then he's like, prepare a guest room. I hope to come to you soon. Uh, it's great. Um, and that's a quick run through Philemon. I, I mean, I could preach on Philemon, I think, for probably three or four weeks, but I don't have enough time. And so um, he never says set him free. Never really says uh, what to do, but he says receive him as a brother. Receive him as a, a brother. And so whatever the implication of that now means for Philemon, um, the, the relationship that Philemon and Onesimus had is now forever altered. In fact, they're going to now sit at the same table. I mean, maybe not every day. I mean, Onesimus may still serve in the house and he still may serve Philemon. But on the Lord's day, when they gather together and, and Philemon is the, the head of that church that meets in his home and they come to the Lord's table, they, now know, they don't come as slave and master. They come as brothers. I mean, it changes everything. And so now, how are you going to treat him? And that concept that the Apostle Paul gives us in Galatians chapter 3, where Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, now all come to the same <coughs> table. There's just no paradigm for that. They don't know what to do with that in this culture. And the crazy thing is, in the book of Colossians, when Paul is writing to the church in Colossae, he writes them this, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And don't just do it when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working to the Lord, not for human masters. And you know that you'll receive a ward. And then he speaks to masters. Masters, provide for your slaves with what is fair. So, again... And then you look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but those who are harsh. I mean, Paul is, is not saying that slavery within the Roman Empire needs to be abolished. And again, slavery in that time, totally different than slavery in our culture. You have to study it and understand it. It's not black and white. It's not, we can't just say, okay, slavery, this is what we did do. For a long time, it was preached in churches. See, slavery was accepted in the Bible. So our version of slavery um, in the South, the people would get up and preach on Sunday, and they actually printed Bibles for slaves to have, and they took out some of the verses and kept some verses in so that slaves would be reverent. But that's, that type of slavery was inhumane. It did not treat them as people. It treated them as property. 
Okay, so William Wilberforce and people throughout history have spoken against that and have fought against it. So Paul is not trying to deal with the culture of slavery. Maybe he's trying to change the culture one house at a time instead of just changing the whole house. Now, I need you to bear with me because I I want you to think about how Paul is handling this situation and how we live as a culture in the church. Okay, that's one question that we have to have. But I want to take five minutes and I want to talk about um, how do we as a kingdom culture now engage the culture outside the doors of our church building? Because this is important. And in Deuteronomy chapter 23, this is what's interesting. If a slave has taken refuge with you, do not hand them over to their master. Let them live among you wherever they like in whatever town they choose. Do not oppress them. It seems as if the Apostle Paul is actually violating Torah by sending Onesimus back to his master. But uh, that's another reason I feel like Onesimus came to Paul for Paul to speak on his behalf. So they're following Roman law. They're doing it right. Um, And so, but what God is trying to do among his people is he's trying to get them here in Deuteronomy to be a group of people that shelter and protect the weak, the oppressed, and the marginalized. Be a culture of people that protect other people. That's what he wants his people to be. And so when it comes to learning how to engage our culture, we have got to, and one of the things I think we need to do is understand the the scripture in its culture and in its context so that we can take the wisdom of that and apply it. We cannot just take verses about slavery in the scripture and black and white apply them to our day. We have to understand what's happening here, take the wisdom of that moment, and then bring it into our day. Because this is a different time, a different place, and this is a time of dictatorships and empires. So the early church is not trying to change the culture around them. It's not possible. The only way to change a dictatorship or an empire is guns and knives and swords and like... And Jesus is like, no, 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 guys, I have not come to overthrow Rome. I've come to create a culture within the culture. And so we look at that. And now some people in our American culture look at that and say, see, the church was never engaged in in politics or in the social structure. So therefore, we should not. False. False. Because if you understand the cultural context, you understand why they did not engage. We live in a culture called Democratic Republic, where you and I get a vote, we get a voice, we get a choice. We're actually expected. It's not just a privilege, it's actually a responsibility as an American citizen to vote. So we should be engaged. We should be able to take the truths of the scripture and apply them to our culture. However, it's not always black and white. I posted this week on our church Facebook page an article by a, Baptist, or a Presbyterian minister by the name of Tim Keller. And he gives us a little bit of insight in how we choose party affiliation or how we choose a candidate because what we want to do is make it black and white. We want to say, if you're not in my political party, you're wrong. You're not a Christian. If you're not voting for my candidate, you're wrong. You're not a Christian because this is the only way to see things. And can I tell you something? Politics should never divide the body of Christ. Ever. 
Because we live in a kingdom above the kingdoms of this earth. That does not mean we should not be engaged in it. We absolutely should be engaged in it. And if you and I cannot be engaged in it in a way different than the people out there are engaged in it, how can we claim to have the spirit of the living God living inside of us? It ought to be totally different. We ought to be able to disagree on things and sit at the same table and fellowship. Because that's the kingdom. And sometimes we take it too far and we say, you know, if, if this political party wins or if this candidate wins, the kingdom will be thwarted. The kingdom will never be thwarted. No human institution could ever stop the kingdom. It's impossible. And so I want you to be passionate about what you think is right. I want you to speak based on what your understanding of the wisdom in the word of God is. But I want you to remember that our hope resides at the right hand of the Father. And all kingdoms and authorities have already been put under his feet. Oh, I need to take two more minutes. Because there's a passage of scripture that has become super important for us in Restoration Church that I believe is so important for the world in which we live. Jeremiah chapter 29. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all of those carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so the Jews were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon into exile by the will of God. God did this. And this is what Jeremiah says to them. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and daughters, give them in marriage, so that you, so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Lord, have you met the Babylonians? You really want us to prosper them? They're wicked, they're evil. Did you see what they did to some of our family members when they came into Jerusalem? They killed them. And now you want us to work for the peace and prosperity of them? Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is what the Lord says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed... For Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise. Here's what's happening. Jeremiah is the only one saying these things. Build houses, settle down. You're going to be there 70 years. The other prophets are saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Live out of a suitcase. Don't, don't settle down. Be, uh, God's going to bring us right back. He's going, to with, he's going to overthrow the Babylon. And Jeremiah is the only one prophesying the truth. Settle down. Work for the peace and prosperity of the city. Maintain your identity as people of God. Do not... Get engaged in their culture in the way that would dis, dis, disconnect you from who you are as the people of God. Live as the people of God in that culture. Okay? That's something that Jeremiah's prophesying. And do you know what the people around want to do to Jeremiah? Kill him. They want to kill him because they don't like what he's saying. Now, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah, in the book of Daniel, are a living illustration of this. They work for the king. They work in the government. But yet, they keep their identity as 
kingdom people. They don't participate in all of the things. But they go to the classes. They learn the arts. They learn the things that they're supposed to learn in the Babylonian culture. But they don't participate and engage in them to separate themselves from the world. So what's this mean for us? This means what it meant for the people reading it in this day. They're reading the book of Daniel while they're under Roman occupation. And under Roman occupation, the key is not try to overthrow the Roman Empire. The key is learn to live as a kingdom culture within the Roman Empire. So the key for us is how do we live as a kingdom culture within a democratic republic? That's our conversation. That's what you and I need to walk through. And we need to be careful that we do not engage in the culture in a way. Culture even meaning some things that are good or look good and they look moral, but they're not according to the Scripture. They're not guided from the truths of God's Word. And so those are the conversations that you and I have to engage in as we live as a kingdom culture in this world. So, sometimes people say, are you saying we shouldn't be engaged in politics? No, absolutely engage. Please engage. Please talk about your thoughts. However, social media is probably not the way to do it. I'm just going to be honest. I finally got to the point where the Lord said, don't comment on anyone else's page other than your own. Because there's no point. It can produce nothing good. That's what the Lord told me. So I don't. If you want to have a conversation with me, we'll have a conversation. But social media divides. It divides. And it divides the body of Christ. And we can't do it anymore. Because no matter what happens in November, the kingdom's going to go. It's going forward. And it's going to expand. And I'm excited about what God's leading us into. And as a church, we believe God has called us to work for the peace and prosperity of this city where he has sent us, not into exile. We didn't put that on the back of our shirts because people would misunderstand that. Um, but where we are. And so I wish I had more time. I don't have time. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. And here's how I'm going to pray for us today. Paul wrote some prayers in the book of Colossians, in the book of Ephesians, in the book of Romans. And I'm going to pray those prayers over us as a church as we get ready to go. And we, for those of you that are here, we are still going to have our business meeting immediately after the dismissal. So we want you to stick around uh, for that. And uh, we hope it won't take uh, long. And I'm sorry I went over... Um, yeah, there's still so much in Philemon. Who knew that 24 verses could take forever to talk about? But, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. And so, Father God, I ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that your spirit gives so that we would live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in our knowledge of God, 
being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, so that we would have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to you who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of your holy people in the kingdom of light. For you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, would you give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know you better. May the eyes of our hearts be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in your holy people, and your incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same mighty strength that you exerted when you raised Christ from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the age to come. Father, I ask in view of your mercy, help us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, because this is our true and proper worship. Holy Spirit, help us not to conform to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will be able to test and approve what God's will is, your good, pleasing and perfect will. Father, may you strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. I pray that we being rooted and established in love may have power together with all your holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to you who are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here, for staying a little bit late today, and uh, maybe for putting up with a little bit of foolishness, as the Apostle Paul would say. Um, but I welcome you to have conversation. You want to have coffee together and uh, kind of dissect that a little bit more. I know I went through it quick. I promise we'll come back to the book of Philemon in the year 2021. But um, we're going to have our hosts come. If you